quarters past midnight on the 25th of April, 1980. Over a hundred Special Forces soldiers are stationed in a salt flat deep in the deserts of Iran. The men are nervous, but also giddy. For months, 52 Americans have lay hostage in the city of Tehran. Soon, these soldiers will get the chance to rescue their countrymen in what will surely be one of the most daring missions in their country's history. Suddenly, there's a cracking sound from across the landing strip, followed by the panic whir of a screaming motor. A hundred heads turn to see a Sikorsky helicopter crash into a massive C-130 transport aircraft. Two metal beasts meet in a fiery dance, which cuts through the inky night in the murky sandstorm of a conflagration of orange death. Anticipation turns to horror in the stomachs of each man there. For a while, it is not spoken. For minutes, it will not be declared. But Operation Eagle Claw is now a failure, after it barely gotten started. This is No One Is Competent, the premier history comedy podcast dedicated to telling you that every politician, CEO, and in this case, military mind that's ever existed in history has been terrible at their job. Uh, bad. Uh, foolish. One might even say incompetent. On this voyage of the damned, I am your guide, your journeyman, your captain, the host with the most verbose, Azalea. And I'm Jay, and I'm also here. Yeah, Jay, this is episode nine. This is a fun one. This is, I have wanted to do this one since we started doing this. I, I am really hyped. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's definitely a very uh, interesting and fun topic. Because, like, this isn't, like, a giant, like, social movement or, like, a flashpoint in history. Like, like it's important, you know, this caused things and had effects. But, but this is just, like, in many ways, it's a very dark sitcom episode, right? Yeah. Like, this is just a thing that happened that's just wacky and dumb, and I think it's right up our alley. For sure, it's a... The tragedy of airs, or a comedy, perhaps, in a twisted way. Audience, you'll be the one to decide if it's tragedy or comedy. For now, a little housekeeping. You can find me on Twitter at Azalea Wyatt, or on YouTube, Wyatt the Word Weaver. You can find Jay at Jaharis48 on both Twitter and YouTube. Keep an eye on that YouTube channel it's, uh, of Jay's. It's getting pretty interesting these days. Anyway, you can also find the podcast on Twitter uh, uh, at uh, not underscore competent. I think that's it. It is. And you'll find on that Twitter some podcast previews and just fun little trivia about the show. Um, I am going to start doing self-harm every day. I forget to (laughs) uh, update the Twitter feed. Um, And yes, that is a thing I should be joking about. Um, our music is done by the legendary Sam Bryce, and this is a show with no sponsors and no commercials. So if you wish to give back to the podcast, please, please tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell that boss right after you get done sucking his or her dick for a raise. We need people listening to this show. It would also really, really help if you, um, would 
go and rate us on the podcasting platform of your choice, whether that be Apple, Spotify, leave us some comments on YouTube, even do it on multiple platforms if you really, really want to give back. And by the way, don't be sucking dick for a raise. This is a worker's economy. <laughs> go out and, and strike. Th- throw a firebomb. Um, y- you know, blackmail. I would just like to say for now that Azalea's views do not reflect the views of the podcast as a whole. And we do not advocate violence of any kind. There, Jay, are you happy? Yes. How's your week been? Uh, it's been all right. Been okay. Um, kind of busier, actually, but it's not a bad thing. How's your week been? Miserable. Uh, really fucking awful. Uh, my uncle died like 10 days ago. We had to do all that. Uh, have had some depression. I recently decided to rewatch all of the Ava rebuilds in one day, which was a decision. Just a decision. That help with his oppression? Let me tell you, man. When, when, when you think that, when you're like, when you've just quit your job and had a family member die and you're wondering if, you know, every decision you've ever made is correct and if you're going to, like, end up a failure in life, uh, you cannot redo is certainly a film that you need to throw in the (laughs) blu-ray player uh just kidding i torrented that shit anyway um this podcast is a is a is a gleaming um beacon of light in my life and uh i'm i'm gonna do it and let's jump into the episodes so people stop worrying about me which you should not do because i'm very pretty and i'm very cool and um, my life is surely going to turn out uh, better than yours because I'm prettier than you and I'm cooler than you. Okay, so today we're talking about Operation Eagle Claw. Jay, what is Operation Eagle Claw? Well, Operation Eagle Claw was a mission launched on April 24th, 1980 by the U.S. military to rescue the American hostages being held in Tehran, the capital of Iran. Why are there American hostages being held in Tehran? Now, that's something which I think a lot of people are familiar with, but it's worth stepping a little bit back to examine the historical background to um, to really understand why that is the case. And now we get to do the historical context of Iran! Wee-woo! We'll we'll try to keep this one shorter than some of our previous contact sessions. That's a Um, challenge. Yeah. (laughs) Try. Hence, you know, that's the imperative word. You know, I think Iran or I guess Persia in like the historical context is is a really weird because like, like, I learned a lot about it in school, but it's like I learned tons about it until like 1700 in which case it like totally dropped out of my textbooks and then like the iran hostage crisis happens in like 1979 um and that's like the extent and and, like i'm you know iran pops up in the uh in, in in modern news every like three months or so um either by you know them fucking with something or american diplomat and politicians being incompetent towards them or some shit but i feel like there's this big gap in there that we don't talk a lot about and we're not going to cover that entire gap but i think i think we'll we'll do a little bit to illuminate uh some iranian history for y'all today 
Sure, and you know, as you mentioned, Iran is more commonly known as Persia in the historical context, and it does have a long history of civilization and empire. For, for over 2,000 years, the lands that make up modern nation of Iran have played host to kingdoms and empires that were some of the most powerful in Asia. But by the beginning of the late modern era, the power wielded by Persia was in a state of, of definite decline. You know, Persia was never formally colonized by the Europeans, but by the late 19th century, the country had been divided into spheres of influence. You had the Russians in the north and the British in the south. Yeah. So, Iran is a classic story of a non-European uh, country in uh, the colonial period, where it's a massive network of overland trade and whatnot and has these massive multi-ethnic empires run out of it. Uh, but, you know, as seafaring European trade begins dominating the world, everything just sort of starts to, like, flock to there, and, like, power and influence and technology just start leeching out of Persia, and it gets left behind, right? So yeah. we're going to fast forward a little bit to the late 1940s, and what's now called the country of Iran is under the rule of this guy named Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, and he is the second Shah of the Pahlavi dynasty. By the way, I, he, he's, the, he's the second and last Shah of the Pahlavi dynasty. I don't think you should get to be called a dynasty if you're only two people. <laughs> like, that, that's just... That, this just undignified. Like, I don't know. Anyone can have a kid. Yes, you know, they wanted to fit it into the, you know, dynastic history. You know, you got, like, the Safavids to the Qajars to the to the Pahlavis, even though the Pahlavis only, only have two of them. Listen, I'll give him points for aspiration, but we don't have to, uh, <laughs> to, to honor these sick monarchical fantasies. Um, his father... Uh, Reza Khan uh, took power in a coup in 1921, uh, but he was forced to abdicate in 1941 after Britain and the Soviet Union launched a joint invasion of the country uh, in World War II. Iran had tried to be neutral in World War II, but it had had a lot of like German industry in it and influence in it. Very similar to, like, how America was technically neutral for a lot of World War II, except, like, it obviously traded with the Allies way more than the Axis. Yeah. But there was a lot of investment in British oil fields in Iran. Just, uh, Iran, just like last episode we talked about the, uh, Saudi, not the, just Saudi Arabia, is, uh, a country in the Middle East, um, that had a lot of old empire and that old empire sort of shriveled away and is resurging under massive oil wealth. But that oil wealth is mostly being siphoned off uh, to the Westerners uh, that are providing the um, oil drilling rigs. Those oil drilling rigs are British and during World War II, the British, uh, with the help of the Soviet Union, uh, decided to invade the nation in order to secure their uh, oil production which of course will be incredibly important in times of war yeah so basically after world war ii we will have iran as a country under the control of Mohammad reza Pahlavi. when the allies uh, take control they sort of 
boot out his dad and welcome the next in line. And it uh, is formally now just really an extractive petrol state. And the bulk of this oil revenue goes straight into the hands of foreigners and the ruling elite. Uh, this is all being set up under the British Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which is one of the many international corporations that will eventually all be fused into BP. So the next time you pass a, a green gas station, uh, you can think about that. <laughs> yeah, with that being said, at the start of the 50s, Iran wasn't an absolute monarchy. The Constitution, which dates back to 1906, called for a European-style constitutional monarchy, with an elected parliament governing the country on the behalf of the Shah. Is Shah just like the Farsi word for king? Yes. Essentially, yes. So, even though the Shah sort of fancies himself as a ruler, his country does have, at this point, you know, some form of democratic participation, of you know, popular power, and the people are not going to be very happy with the fact that the more or less sole strength of power and wealth in their nation is being siphoned up by foreigners, and this leads to the election of this guy named Mohammed Masada as Prime Minister in 1951. Uh, this guy... Uh, is a socialist, some might say a communist, and he decides to do exactly what the people who elected him want him to do, and nationalize Iran's oil industry. Yeah. Which is going to go great for him. Uh, well, not quite, because as it turns out, his nationalization of British interests led to a rather intensive British campaign to undermine his administration. The British won the support of the United States by emphasizing Mossadegh's connections to Iran's communist parties, and in 1953, royalist forces launched a coup with British and American backing that forced Mossadegh from office and centralized power in the hands of the Shah. Yeah, and this is a common story of the 20th century, right? Like, you have an up-and-coming nation-state, uh, a leftist tries to nationalize the oil, and some Westerners come in and coo them. <laughs> and normally in this story, it's the Americans doing the cooing, right? But this is still the early 50s, and the CIA is not the uh, assassination-happy uh, coup machine it would eventually kind of become. Yeah, the, the real impetus for this is the British. They're the ones who really do the most um, to topple us in that. But meanwhile, the Shah is not exactly like turning his eyebrow up to this. He still gets to be in power, he still gets control of the nation, and uh, now there's even less democratic threat to his legitimacy. He goes ahead doing a little bit to actually modernize Iran in a sort of Western fashion, and he encourages a secular national identity based on using Iran's uh, imperial history as basis for popular support. You know, they build a lot of statues of ancient Persian kings and whatnot. This is kind of part of the general trend in the Middle East of the time of all these countries being ruled by uh, secular leaders. Yeah, you know, you have the, the Bathists and, in Iraq and Syria and whatnot. And yeah, they're using nationalism more for a base of support than religion. 
And after a few decades of this, if you kind of like look on the surface, uh, the Shah is doing a pretty good job in Iran by the 70s. You know, at this point, we've got this uh, urban middle class elite and uh, you have increasingly the greatest, uh, in my opinion, if you want to measure the enlightenment and wealth of a society, you need to use one single metric, and that is how many young women in your country are wearing mini skirts. And as you can see by graph, uh, and and some uh, what's the word uh, 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 anecdotal evidence, the amount of mini skirts in Iran were increasing uh, steadily over the course of the sixties and seventies. Hey, we're doing quite well on the uh, the mini skirt index. But unfortunately, one cannot thrive on mini skirt alone. And uh, just like most extractive capitalist systems, uh, under the hood, Iran is just falling the heck apart. You've got massive wealth disparities. Uh, you've got people getting educations and flocking to cities, but there's nothing really for them to do. There's not enough jobs. You have vast swaths of the country still in rural wasteland and the economic downturn in the 70s uh, leads to uh, another explosion of unrest against the Shah and this culminates in the 1978 and 79 Iranian revolution now while these days we think of the Iranian revolution as mostly a religious movement it's important to note that it was initially backed by a large swath of political movements including liberals, socialists, and even communists. However, the most powerful and popular anti-Shah leader was Ruhollah Khomeini. Now, Khomeini had become popular in the 50s and 60s through his calls for a theocratic state based on the teachings of Shia Islam, and he was forced into exile in 1964, but returned during the revolution. You know, he and his theocrats were thus able to take control over the new government, by simply being the most popular faction, and they officially formed the Islamic Republic of Iran in 1979. Many Iranians saw the Shah as the source of the blight and economic lack of prosperity in the country, and everybody knew where the Shah got his power. Not from God, not from the people, not from his you know, military strength or prowess, he was a front for the Westerners. At first, that was the British, but increasingly, that was the Americans. And Khomeini's teaching portrayed the West and America uh, as a blight and enemy of Iran and Islam itself. He rally, rail, he rails against the decadence and corruption of the West and by 79 is ripping up a real revolutionary fervor in the country and what we might call a religious awakening we're not going to talk about say the iraq iran uh war that will follow this but uh if, if you study like iran in the 80s for any period of time you will hear wild tales of people being absolutely whipped up on uh religious fervor um, to an almost euphoric and, I would even say, like, drug-equivalent strength. 
Now, the United States, and indeed much of the outside world, was almost completely caught off guard by the Iranian Revolution. On the surface, the Shah still seemed to be strong, and nobody really expected him to fall in such a quick manner. In spite of the rapid nature of the revolution and the anti-American sentiment that was being whipped up by Ayatollah Khomeini, the U.S. in 1979 didn't actually cut off diplomatic relations with Iran, even after the Shah had fled. Um, the U.S. Embassy thus remained active and was staffed. And in February 1979, this would lead to a group of militants inspired by Khomeini to attack the U.S. Embassy. Now, in this initial attack, they only managed to take one hostage, a U.S. Marine, and this release was negotiated for um, in the coming months by the Iranian government. So, you have uh, Iran and the city of Tehran in general getting increasingly swept up with both like religious fervor and also the young people, the students, are really getting out and demonstrating, rioting, partying. There are students who have been given the chance to voice their rage and displeasure, and they're doing that uh, in full force. And we all know what this looks like, right? Yeah. I, this is one of like, the weird things, because in the United States, really, we haven't had big, active, and really aggressive, like, political student movements, arguably since, you know, the Vietnam War era. Whereas if you look like, say, f France, South Korea, Japan, like... And we had Kent State. True, yeah. But yeah, in a lot of the countries, like, student movements are, like, big part of just major political moments. And that's certainly the case in Iran. You hear that, American college students? You're fucking <laughs> embarrassing. Get on the rioting already. <laughs> yep. Speaking of uh, rioting and student protests, um, big large-scale attacks start occurring on the U.S. Embassy in November of 79. Um, these are students that are you know they're climbing up the uh walls and the fences uh they're you know shouting banners and rallies outside uh it is a supposedly peaceful demonstration and sit-in but um you know you've got a mob of hundreds and now growing into thousands of people it's basically surrounding the embassy on all sides and basically what happens is that the Iranian guards uh, that are guarding the embassy basically are like, this is not worth the trouble, and also we don't really like these guys either, and just sort of let them in. Yeah, and, and the U.S. embassy, of course, has its own guards, Americans, but you have to put yourself in their shoes. They're faced with a massive hostile mob surrounding them. If they start firing, that could create a huge diplomatic incident. Or it could potentially even lead to a military escalation of the situation. Yeah, they're, they're outnumbered result, hundreds they, to one. Yeah, so, so as a result, they, they don't fire. And so the embassy is sieged, and the mob quickly turns violent, overpowers the guards, and suddenly you have the entire embassy staff getting taken hostage. Uh, the embassy 
tries to hold them off for a while, tries to lock things down. Uh, there's a rush to shred and burn documents that is uh, somewhat successful, though they don't get everything. And uh, suddenly, these students have a bunch of American hostage on their hands, which will be turned over to uh, Khomeini's government. But I, I have to, like, wonder how long it takes for, like, this sort of ragtag bunch of of 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds to, like, start... Like, like, you know, when, when does this stop being a, a teenager operation and start being a, like, government operation? Um, surely there had to be a moment where it's like, okay, the, uh, the, the military or the government or the adults are going to take over. Yeah, well, the news, you know, the, the news quickly reached Ayatollah Khomeini, and actually most of his um, advisors expected him to release the hostages. They didn't think that he would go along with this, um, with the student's plan. But he decided to, you know, to um, to just go with it. And the Iranian government endorsed the, endorsed the, uh, the takeover of the embassy and took control of the situation. Now, stateside, the United States of America is being run by one Jimmy Carter, who is possibly the weirdest American president in several categories. Certainly one of the more misunderstood American presidents. This guy is just weird. Like, he's incredibly religious, like, even by American president standards, like, written a lot about religion, some of it, which is kind of interesting. He has a PhD. The guy was a peanut farmer. He's from Georgia, so, of course, I have to speak about him at least somewhat reverently. His politics are, are weird. He, he somehow was smart enough to get elected president, but also stupid enough to think that making a speech about how you should conserve energy in the winter by wearing more sweaters indoors was a good idea. Um, he's like famously a, a kind of good like post-president model. He's somehow not dead yet. Watch, watch Jimmy Carter have a heart attack like two days before we, we, after we record this. Yeah, a fun note, you know, most of the deregulations you think that Ronald Reagan uh, passed, most of those were Carter. <laughs> Carter was a bigger deregulator than Reagan. Before Reagan, like, the left-right political split in America was really not formalized. Like, Richard Nixon was, like, in many ways way more to the left than people think he was, and Carter was in many ways way more in the light. Like, like, like Carter came in to end, like, the New Deal, Great Society-style Democratic Party, and it ended up being a presidency full of follies and half-baked policies. Maybe Jimmy Carter will get his own, um episode one day but that that is a put that on the list jay right. <laughs> you know in a year or two jimmy jimmy carter episode but anyway within the carter administration there's basically two prominent voices in the ear of the president as to what to do about this hostage situation one of these voices is secretary of state sirens vance and the other is national security advisor Oh my lord, that is a name. <laughs> I was waiting till we got up to the name. You know, when I was writing this, 
I just found this so funny that like we're doing an episode on Iran, and somehow this the most is the height of the Cold War, and they let this Ruski into the freaking White House. <laughs> He's Polish. He's Polish. Polish. Okay, Polish. <laughs> all right, all right. Um. So, no, so no, 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 no. I, I'm I gonna do it, Jay. I'm just gonna raw dog it. I'm just gonna <laughs> go for it. All right. And the other voice is National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski. That's pretty good. I'm going to be banned from, like, every Polish restaurant for the rest of my life. <laughs> I love kielbasa. I am a big kielbasa stan. You have... Do you have Polish friends? <laughs> I mean, I'm white, so, like... I know no. tons of white people, so like, and none of us know where the heck we're from at all. So probably, maybe, like I could be Polish, and I do not know. <laughs> no one in my family even knows when we came over on the boat. That's actually kind of concerning. Like my country of origin is cordial Georgia. <laughs> that is my ancestral homeland. Fair. That is as far back as the records go. Fair. And also, like, bumfuck, like, Amarillo, Texas on the other side. I mean, like, it was probably, like, like my, my last name, my government name is Holder. So, like, by the way, I am completely unafraid of doxing myself. Like, please figure out where I live. Like, come to my house. Challenge me to Mortal Kombat on my lawn. You'll die. I'll go back to tending to my zucchini. It'll be great. I'm fine. Uh, so my last name is Holder, at, which, which is pretty Anglo-Saxony. And considering, like, we were here before the Civil War, I can draw back. I don't look into a lot of that history because uh, obvious reasons. But um, that would imply Western European heritage probably... A mixture of English and French. Who gives a shit? Anyway, uh, Brzezinski uh, wants to do the bang bang, and uh, Cyrus Vance wants to do the talk. Cyrus Vance is a sexy ass name. Like, I'm sure this guy is like a war criminal piece of shit because he's a Secretary of State in the 70s, but I like the name Cyrus Vance. It's a good name. Now, Vance and Brzezinski were both members of the Special Coordinating Committee formed by the president to handle the hostage crisis. But as the negotiations dragged on and increasingly seemed fruitless, uh, Vance became increasingly isolated from the president, and Carter leaned more towards Brzezinski's proposal of a military solution. Now, the two men actually had a history, even before the hostage crisis, of kind of hating each other. Um, in the beginning of 1979, Brzezinski got Carter to send a, a military officer, um, General Heuser, over to the embassy in Iran to basically just oversee or babysit the ambassador. Now, this infuriated uh, Vance because he saw it as a big intrusion onto the authority of the Secretary of State. And when Carter sided with the general and with um, Brzezinski on his assessments of the situation in Iran, that further humiliated Vance. You know, Carter himself would later state, I hardly know the desk officers and others in state, but work very closely with national security people. And the 
All this means that by the time you get to late 79, early 1980, Vance has lost the president's ear and is increasingly withdrawn from the situation. So this leads Berensky sort of free reign to present Brzezinski, who gives a shit, uh, to come up with a military solution. He starts throwing together a big soup of, uh, puts together a special committee and mixes in people from the Secretary of Defense's office, the chairman, joint of staff, director of CIA, you know, they're all sort of, you know, big, big sweaty, uh, I'm imagining like, you know, ties draped over chairs at 4 a.m. meetings, like, you know, plenty of whiskey going around, um, you, you can barely see through the room, there's so much cigar smoke just flooding in the, the air, um, they're, they're planning this, um, isn't the Pentagon, like, an awfully ventilated building at this point in history, whatever, um, Probably. This is before all the renovations happened in the late 90s. Um, famously, uh, here here's a fun fact about the Pentagon. Uh, if you ever go to the Pentagon, you will note that in many ways it's a very convenient place to be because, like, no matter where you're in it, you're always, like, super close to the bathroom. And you're like, damn, there's, like, a lot of bathrooms in the Pentagon. Like, this is, like, really nice. And then you remember, oh, yeah, that was because it was designed for segregation. Fun times. <laughs> yeah. That was never enforced to give Eisenhower credit, but still. Brzezinski uh, gets together these guys, and they come up with Operation Eagle Claw. That, which is like... Eagle Claw <laughs> sounds like... Okay, it doesn't sound like... It sounds like a parody of American Special Forces, like... Ex sound like a G.I. Joe episode, man. It really does. Like, it does It does not sound like Bush era, because it doesn't have, like, freedom anywhere freedom. in the name. <laughs> but, like... Yeah, it sounds like a Rambo... Uh, fucking... Eagle Claw. Yeah, no, if, th if this was a neocon job, it would be, like, Operation Perpetual Freedom or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, o Operation Eagle Freedom, um, and, uh, you know, one day in April 1980, Vance goes to Florida on some business or vacation, you don't care, I don't care, and President Carter authorizes Operation Eagle Claw, uh, Vance would, would resign, uh, on April 21st, uh, right before this would be, be set to begin, but if you remember from the beginning... This shit goes down on, like, the 24th and the 25th. And this was only authorized in, like, early April. So, like, I, I guess they spent... Alright, so the, the revolution happens in, like, November. It's when the hostage crisis happens. So, let's say, in an absolute, like, best-case scenario, this plan had five months of planning behind it, and then it had, like... 23 days of direct prep before it was yeah. executed. And that is at like the like the absolute like most. Yes. By the way, to speak to the domestic situation um briefly, 
there's a lot of pressure on Carter to get this shit nailed down. Because the, the Iranian hostage crisis is just a complete humiliation of America on the world stage. Uh, America in the 70s is not doing great in general. Uh, there's uh, famously stagflation. There's several periods of oil shocks, log gas lines. Uh, there's the fallout of Vietnam. The, the country is just... The only thing good is the music. That's the best way to put the 70s. Even the, even the cars were bad. <laughs> huh? Even the cars were bad. Yeah. Late 70s American cars are gone awful. A 400cc engine making 40 horsepower. I'm a fan of I'm a fan of uh 240zs. Uh but that's just because my Yeah, well, those are Japanese. Fair enough. I I actually did not know that. My 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 dad yeah. still owns uh a red like I think 76 240z. Yeah, no, those are made by uh and what's now known as uh, a Nissan. I thought Nissan was South Korean. No, they're Japanese. What's the big South Korean manufacturer? Hyundai. Hyundai and Kia are the big two from South Korea. Well, this has been your thing that you didn't think would be in this episode. But yeah, uh, Carter is growing increasingly unpopular, and uh, he really wants to get these hostages freed. So obviously you know the Eagle Claw fails. We've already told you that. But... We are now going to enter for about 30 minutes or so. Twenty. I have no idea how long this section is going to take. It's, it's the bulk of the document. We're, we're going to tell you, like, this is like, you, you know, uh, during, like, the movie where they're, like, they sit down for, like, the heist or the big operation. They're like, what's the plan? And as the guy, like, describes the plan. Yes, the ocean, Ocean's Eleven. You, you see it go down. Uh, that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to just talk through Operation Eagle Claw. Like, if it had worked on paper, what it would have entailed. And we're at the end going to tell you, like, why this is all batshit insane and probably would have <laughs> failed in most timelines. Uh, but for now, just kind of pay attention uh, as we describe what the plan is. And there may be several times times where you find yourself raising an eyebrow or two yes now as it's most basic operation eagle claw called for a raid on the u.s embassy in tehran to free the hostages the problem is that if you know anything about iran you know it's a rather big country the tehran itself is well out of the range of u.s helicopters and this would turn what might have otherwise been a fairly straightforward though still risky plan into this humongous operation involving four branches of the military and dozens of moving parts over a course of two nights, which we will now describe. Just, just, just as a uh, aside, Iran is like the size of about a fifth of the continental United States. Like, is it's huge. I don't know if it's bigger than Alaska. Um, probably yeah, bigger, probably. yeah, or, or in the same size, I mean, Alaska is way bigger than anyone ever thinks it is, um, but it's, it's huge. It looks yeah. small on a map because you're dumb, but, and your brain doesn't know how to size things properly, but, uh, I, I run big, I run very big. Yeah. 
And then another thing I think is worth briefly noting before we actually get started on the uh, on the plan is that at the core of this plan was a newly formed unit, that being the U.S. Army's First Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, better known as Delta Force. Delta Force had been stood up as a weak counterterrorism and special missions unit in 1977, and this would be their first combat mission. How prestigious. It's funny, because, like, these days, we think of special forces as being, like, really being, like, the way the American military operates, like, sending in a small group of heavily armed, ridiculously well-trained people to get a job done, like, quickly and then extract out. But this, this is, like not an American tradition until, like, well into the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, you know, up to this point, the Army's main focus has been on big wars, either on, you know, the potential World War III with Soviet Union, or just big conflicts like Vietnam. And most special forces or commando-type operations were done with a sort of direct tactical role in mind in supporting, you know, operations on the battlefield. Think of something like going in behind enemy lines to destroy a bridge or something. And this sort of like hostage kind of you know, hostage release mission, they hadn't done this before. Yeah. And like if you were going to have a group of Americans like go into a hostile country and like fuck shit up before, it would probably be like the CIA's. Uh, role of expertise and yeah uh, the cia will be heavily involved in this don't get me wrong but just off the start i like to have like the first bullet point of operation eagle claws like failure record be the u.s government is trying to do something and the u.s army is trying to do something that it has never done before and it does not know that it can do yes so what's the what, what's the first thing that's supposed to happen so on night one, this would be the night of April 24th, at approximately 1,800 hours, three United States Air Force C-130 transport aircraft carrying 93 Delta Force soldiers, 13 Special Force operatives, um, these are what we would call colloquially the Green Berets, 12 Rangers, and a team of Air Force combat controllers, along with associated support personnel, for a total of 139 men would take off from Oman and head towards the Iranian desert. They would be joined shortly afterwards by further three C-130s converted into tankers. Now, aboard the C-130s was the Delta Force leader, Colonel Charles Beckwith, who would be in command of the Delta Force men throughout the mission. C-130 rolling down the strip, Marine Corps on a one-way trip. Mission type secret destination unknown. I don't even know if I'm coming home. C-130 going down the strip. 251 gonna take a little trip. Stand up, buckle up, shuffle to the door. Jump right out and shout Marine Corps. If my chute don't open wide, I got another by my side. If my reserve don't blossom round, I'll be the first one on the ground. I can do this for another six minutes. <laughs> now, for a little bit of um, context, I'm sure if you're watching this on YouTube, we'll have a picture of a C-130 up. But 
A C-130 is um, a, a four-engine turboprop transport aircraft. Huge. It's about 100 foot feet long, yeah, and it can carry uh, 42,000 pounds of payload. And C-130s are the backbone for the um, for, for basically the U.S. military in terms of tactical airlift. If the U.S. needs to take anything anywhere, that's troop transports, that's that's physical people, that's big machines, artillery. Just if you need stuff to go places, you you, you use C-130s. Yes. And we will be uh, talking about a lot of C-130s throughout this episode. Now, concurrent with the C-130s departure, eight Navy RH-53 Sea Stallions, these being uh, helicopters, um, heavy lift helicopters, crewed by Marine pilots, would depart from the carrier USS Nimitz in the Persian Gulf and fly low over Iran. So, we've got... One group of C-130s flying out of Oman, and we've got another group of helicopters flying out of the Persian Gulf. Yes. So already we got two separate flight groups. And three branches. Um, yeah, the Air Force, Navy, and Marines, essentially. I guess technically also Army aboard the C-130s. So second bullet point of the Operation Eagle Claw... A lot of cooks in the kitchen here. Oh, yeah. A lot of different things happening at different times. Uh, big coordinated operation. Now, the C-130s are traveling to this pre-selected location. They're going to call Desert One. This is 265 miles southeast of Tehran. And it is, as we understand it, Basically in the middle of nowhere. is desert. It's a salt flat. There's no one around for miles and miles and miles. Yeah, there, there is a road, but it was expected to be completely deserted. Yeah, and, and Iran doesn't have, like, an air force, really, at this point. Kind of, wait... No, they do, because, like, the Shah bots bought toys. Oh, the Shah had a... So the Shah actually had a massive Air Force, very well-trained. But because of the Air Force's close ties with America, um, a lot of their officers are purged or even put in jail um, when the uh, when the Islamic Republic is formed. So at this moment, the Iranian Air Force is, was expected to be at a very low state of operational ability. Yeah, and the country's so rural and they're so ill-equipped to handle any sort of air power that, like, it would be reasonable for these guys to say we can roll in in the middle of the night and no one's going to know we're there if we scouted things out properly. That's not dumb, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So they're going to land at Desert One and they're going to establish a forward operating base, basically just a place to hang out while the mission's going on uh the 12 rangers are going to get out they're going to secure the site they're going to establish a road watch to keep an eye on that highway we just mentioned and um some u.s air force combat controllers are going to set up a landing strip for those helicopters that are coming in from the nimitz now the helicopters would arrive about 15 minutes afterwards and they would land refuel and 
um, then take aboard the Delta Force and Green Beret operators, uh, and these men would form the bulk of the embassy assault team. Uh, this process was expected to last about 45 minutes. And just to remember, like, the first C-130s take off at, like, 6 p.m., so we are now solidly in the middle of the night. That's why they have to set up a landing strip, because it's got to, you know, got to, like, have, like, flares and whatnot for the helicopters to be able to see where they need to land. This is all going to be coordinated in the dead of night. Uh, you know, everyone's rest is kind of running out. But, you know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So the C-130s are going to bring everything in, but then everyone's going to get off the C-130s. They're going to get the fuel off the C-130s. They're going to put the fuel and the people on the helicopters, and the choppers are going to take off. Then everyone that's remaining at Desert One is going to get back on the C-130s and leave. So before morning, Desert One is supposed to be abandoned, right? Yes. Now, those helicopters carrying the embassy assault team are going to take off and they're going to head for Tehran. And they're going to land at this site 65 miles southeast of the city. Uh, this uh, little strip is very uh, cleverly called Desert 2. So here the assault team is going to meet some CIA and Department of Defense intelligence assets who I assume will be responsible for securing Desert 2. Yes. Uh, who have been in the country for months and years. And uh, they're going to head towards a hiding site in an abandoned salt mine because at this point the sun is going to be coming up. Yeah. And the helicopters would in turn depart from Desert 2 after dropping off the soldiers and head to an additional site 50 miles north, where the marine crews would land and camouflage their helicopters in a remote site in the mountains. And all of this was planned to be completed before sunrise. So let's just note, we have not reached day one yet, and we have already mentioned Three separate landing strips that are going to be used. Uh, yep. One to get the troops onto the helicopters, one to get the troops to Tehran, and one to stow the helicopters overnight. Quick, like, I know nothing about military operations question, Jay. Why can't the people just be on the helicopters from the beginning? Uh, you mean flying into Iran in the first place? Yes. Uh, that would, it, it would just, um, it would reduce their range even further just because you'd have the extra weight of all the, all the people. And since the helicopters don't have the range to make Tehran anyways, you have to stop to refuel. You might as well put them on the C-130s. Um, use more space for their gear and everything. It's more comfortable. Going to be a whole heck of a lot more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. So you, you might as well just let them have a little bit of comfort and, and fly on the C-130s. Yeah. If you've never been on a helicopter, listen, helicopters are like kind of necessary for modern military and civilization operations and whatnot. They're good for a whole lot of things. But like, I don't know, man. Rotary aircraft is, is not, it is not near the top of the best ideas that the human race has ever had. <laughs> Let me just put it like that. Yeah. So now 
the assault team, the helicopter crews are hidden at their respective sites, and we have entered day one. And this is where the CIA and Department of Defense assets that have already been on the ground are going to do their thing. Uh, they're going to gather together a bunch of civilian cars and trucks that they've already gathered together before the operation began. And uh, they're going to get those vehicles to Desert 2, where the assault team is waiting. And then shortly before dusk, the guy in charge, uh, Colonel Beckwith, he's going to lead the team of CIA and Department of Defense agents. They're going to drive towards Tehran. They're basically going to scout out the route to the embassy, and then they're going to return to Desert 2, just making sure you know, the coast is clear and whatnot. Yep. It should be noted, there are several, um, basically, checkpoints along the way. So, you know, they're, they're you know, counting on the ability to, to just be able to go through the checkpoints with forged documents. And the CIA agents, obviously, are fluent in Farsi and could pose as locals, but that's just something worth yeah. keeping in mind. And, and I, But I will say, like, Forging documents and duping poorly trained guards is like the CIA is really good at doing that. This is not crazy part of the mission for sure. Yeah, that's that's not one of the high risk parts of this detail. No. Now, also shortly before dusk, four Air Force C-130s carrying a team of a hundred Army Rangers would depart from Egypt and head towards Iran where they would land and secure the abandoned Manzaria airfield, which was about 60 miles southwest of Tehran. After securing Manzaria, they would be joined by two larger C-141 transport aircraft, and one of these was prepared with facilities to treat wounded civilians and personnel. So basically kind of like a flying hospital. So on one hand... Good notes were like preparing for things to go wrong. You know, there's going to be, you know, one of the most insane parts of this whole thing is that they think they're going to get 52 civilians, most of which don't have any sort of combat training out of the city. Um, But, you know, obviously some of them are going to get hurt and some of the military personnel are going to get hurt so you know we we're going to account for that but note this is a separate team and a fourth airstrip now being involved in this operation yeah. now after they secure that then four ac-130 gunships are going to follow um and they're going to stay in the and uh one's going to stay in the air providing uh air cover and the other two are going to head to Tehran to provide support to the embassy assault team. A fourth one is uh, going to um, sort of also be at the Manzaria airbase, but like kind of fervor out uh, and make suppressing any Iranian activity that's going to attempt to, to take the airbase. So there's kind of like two layers of gunships around Manzaria and then two more that are going to be providing air cover to um, the team that's going to hit Tehran. And this is, you know, it's always good to have air cover, but um, it's coming from a separate point than the uh, first team. So basically everyone's 
trusting everyone else to get their shit uh on time yeah and like how many so we've got by my account we've got one team leading from oman we got one team leaving from so we we got four separate teams at this point counting the cia and dod assets that are on the ground (laughs) all involved already yeah and obviously all this is going to be overseen by the USS Nimitz, which is going to be in the Persian Gulf, which if you don't know is right by Iran, kind of ready to spring into action if uh, further air support is required. But now night two has fallen. Yes. And uh, uh, 2030, the assault team at Desert 2 would climb into the vehicles and begin to drive towards Tehran making it through the two highway checkpoints along the way with the aid of the CIA agents. While this is happening, the Marines would prepare their helicopters to take off and head towards Tehran shortly afterwards. So these are the helicopters that were hiding at um, that third strip. That is not the fourth place they plan to take off from. No, that's so they, not so, the, that's the the fourth place is a separate airfield, which is um, which we'll mention a little bit later. Just to summarize, because I know this is getting confusing, they're coming in on Desert One, then they go and they hide at Desert Two, but they hide the helicopters at a separate place, which I'm just going to call Desert Three, even though it's not labeled that because the people who did this mission are dumb <laughs> and. Um, then they're going to leave at a now fourth location yes, that is independently Manzari, secured. Yeah. Now, once they reach Tehran, the assault team would split up, with the 93-man Delta Force team heading to the embassy and the 13-man Green Beret team focusing on the foreign ministry. You know, actually, three Americans were t- being held separate from the embassy in the foreign ministry, which meant that building would have to be stormed you know, separately. The strike was planned for 2,300 hours. Simultaneously, the Delta Force team and the Green Beret teams would break into the embassy and the foreign ministry, and they would storm the building, kill anyone who gets in their way, and secure the hostages. This is at the same time that the Rangers would attack that Manzaray airfield base. So everything's going down at 11 p.m. Yes. While this is going on, a team of Delta Force operatives will remain outside the embassy, which would cover the main force and make sure no one uh, in the city gets in um, while the hostages are being rescued. And they would secure a route to this nearby soccer stadium because the plan is to basically the main force goes in a separate force kind of serves a rear guard, make sure they don't get, you know, flanked or trapped in there or whatnot. They go in, they kill everybody they don't like who's in the embassy, they get everybody out of the embassy, and then they take everyone to this soccer field as a sort of staging location. Meanwhile, air cover is being provided by those two AC-130s that we mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, at this point... Probably the vast majority of resistance they'd be facing would be like, I imagine, like local police, uh, not necessarily military forces. 
It was expected that the Iranian military would take at least 40 minutes to activate and deploy into the city. So they were worried more about police or potentially just locals, you know, rushing into the scene. So they're planning on just, like, bombing and shoot. I feel like this air cover is going to result in a lot of civilian casualties. But, you know, that's just my podcaster know-nothing brain. I'm I'm no elite CIA DOD military plan. Yeah, the people doing the planning, like, routinely mention that, like, they want to make sure to avoid shooting at civilians as much as possible. But it's hard to imagine them being effective um, without killing any civilians if, if, if a mom ends up approaching the embassy, you know. They can't exactly do nothing. But they are planning on the element of surprise and sort of shock and awe. Like, this is going to go down, yeah. hopefully, when most people have gone to sleep. And they're looking to get in and get out before the Iranians even really know what's happening. Yeah. Now, upon Beckwith's order, the helicopters would come to pick up the assault team and the hostages. Two would go to the foreign ministry to pick up the men there, and four would head towards the stadium. The other two, if present, would provide support. These are the helicopters that flew us from Desert 1 to Desert 2, right? Yes. Now, key to this plan is the availability of at least six helicopters. Two for the foreign ministry, four for the stadium. Any fewer, and the helicopters would not be able to pick up all the hostages and soldiers. Two out of the starting eight helicopters could be lost during the operation prior to this phase. If three or more were lost, the plan would be unviable and would have to be called off. Once the assault team and the hostages are on those RH-53s, they're going to head towards Manzaray, which has been independently secured, and they're going to board uh, C-141s, which are essentially C-130s, but even bigger, and everybody would depart for Egypt alongside the remaining C-130s. The helicopters would be scuttled by explosives and detonated on the ground. Uh, this sounds kind of wasteful, but at this point, they just don't have enough fuel and range to sort of, like, get them to a safe spot, and it would be even more complicated to get them out of there, so it's just safer and cleaner for everybody to just blow them up and get everybody on the airplanes. Yeah, and, you know, when all said and all said and done, you, you, eight helicopters is, is a is a worthy cost for saving 52 American hostages. That was supposed to happen. Yeah, and so the sun would rise on, I think, like, what, the 27th in uh, Egypt, and everyone would be popping champagne. Yep. So if y'all paying attention throughout that breakdown, you have noted four basic problems this mission. One... This is something that the U.S. Army has never done before, nor the Marine Corps, nor the Air Force, nor any part of the Department of Defense. Two, this is involving, like, all three of the branches, plus the CIA. You know, a lot of hands in the pot, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. It's a very complicated plan with various teams having to move in concert. And four, it was going to require tons of prep on the ground that... You know, there's no way they could do this without 
they can't bring everything with them. They had to have, not only do all these teams have to work in concert, but they have to trust the agents already on the ground to hold up their end of the operation. This is obviously a complete mess. And now we're going to turn to who planned this clusterfuck. The imperative for Operation Eagle Claw, as mentioned, came at the behest of National Security Advisor Brzezinski, and General James B. Vaught of the U.S. Army was appointed as the head of the Joint Task Force, tasked with planning and carrying out the operation. Now, under Vaught were his Air Force Colonel James H. Kyle and the aforementioned Delta Force Colonel Charles Beckwith, who were in charge of the aviation and ground operations, respectively. Now, much of the planning was carried out by Vaught's staff, with no single individual in charge of designing the entire operation. This was very much a a designed-by-committee affair. So at first, Captain Jerry Hatcher, remember that's an 06, similar to a colonel because this is the Navy, is uh, tasked to command the fleet of the Navy helicopters, those eight Navy helicopters that are going to do a lot of the key transportation work. But he basically just said that this whole thing was stupid. This flight profile is way too dangerous. And because, you know, he's a hater, he is removed from the operation, and Marines are brought in to fly the helicopters, uh, insert crayon-eating joke here. For some reason, there was an explicit desire uh, on the parts of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for all branches of the armed forces to be represented. This is why the Marines are brought in as well, and why they, like... There was a lot of... I, I don't know, are you just, like, going for bonus points at this point? Like, let's just see how sweet this mission can be? You know, the heads of all the branches wanted to be involved, because, you know, if, if they pulled this off, this would be, you know, a, a huge victory for the United States, and in terms of public relations, at least. Um, easily the highlight of American you know, military operations for the entire decade. And there were also behind the scenes, you know, wranglings between the the Marines and the Navy and other branches on different issues. This is when the Marines are kind of getting in a fight with the other branches over being able to own their own fighters. And because of that, the Joint Chiefs are also like, let's throw them this bone, we'll get them involved, and then they can be happy, and maybe they'll agree to, you know, make some concessions in other regards regarding, you know, the budget and other issues never underestimate the department of defense's desire to dick measure clout chase and stunt on everyone around them. <laughs> now intelligence gathering in country was handled by the cia and department of defense agents who were put in charge of acquiring materials selecting hideouts and staking out the embassy and foreign ministry Uh, It's impossible to know exactly how good their intel was, because it was never fully put to the test. But later statements from Iranian sources do uphold the belief of the CIA and DOD agents that the embassy was surprisingly lightly guarded and could be stormed. So at the very least, it seems that their analysis of the situation was probably accurate. 
So, I'd love to tell you that Operation Eagle Claw went wrong trying to get a bunch of untrained hostages out of the building. I'd love to tell you that it went wrong trying to sneak a bunch of Delta Force dudes into the city. But, uh, in fact, Eagle Claw fucked up basically at the first possible opportunity. <laughs> Yes. Everything we just laid out, uh, 95% <laughs> of that will not happen. Yeah. What does happen is they take off at 6 o'clock, but almost as soon as the C-130s cross into Iranian airspace, they encounter a haboob. Haboob. Haboob, they run into a haboob, they get deep in its dirty bosom, they climb, they fly, they saw through the boob, the haboob. Have you, have you had your fun? No. Haboob, 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 haboob. In this part of the world, they call us Sandstorm of Haboob. Sandstorm of Haboob. Okay, now I've had my fun. Okay. Now, as mentioned, they. Haboob! <laughs> as mentioned, they encounter a Haboob, which is a large desert sandstorm, for anybody who missed that. And the C 130s are able to weather the storm pretty okay. Uh, but they radio back news of the Haboob back to headquarters because they know that the helicopters will have a tougher time. Unfortunately, their warnings do not reach the helicopters, though, because helicopters are operating under radio silence. Now, shortly after they cross into Iranian airspace, a warning light comes on into the cockpit of one of the helicopters. Uh, the helicopters, for note, all have a call sign. These call signs are Bluebeard 1 through 8. Uh, this helicopter is Bluebeard 6. The warning light indicates a problem with one of the helicopter's rotor blades, and fearing the potential for a rotor failure, the crew contacted their wingman in Bluebeard 8. Both helicopters made the decision to land in the desert, and the crew of Bluebeard 6 disembarked to join Bluebeard 8. This means the fleet of eight helicopters is now down to seven, and as a reminder, Six will be needed to complete the mission. The helicopter fleet encounters the first sandstorm at 2000 hours. Uh, temperatures inside the helicopters rise. The clouds of dust and sand just start absolutely battering the equipment and the crews. But seven helicopters make it for the first boob only to fly right into a second one. And this is where Bluebeard 5's navigation instruments begin to fail, and the helicopter crew lose sight of the rest of the fleet. Uh, the, that crew decides to turn around and head on back to the Nimitz. If you've been keeping rapid attention, you'll know we're now down to six, the bare minimum required to field the mission. Yes. Now, 2200 hours, the C-130s did begin to land at Desert One. Now, this location was selected due to its supposedly favorable terrain, it being a salt plant straddling a road with supposedly minimal sand and dust, and was also meant to be very remote. 
In spite of this remoteness, the C-130s immediately encounter Iranian civilians. A convoy of fuel smugglers basically drive right into Desert One and are fired upon by the Roadwatch. The fuel truck is hit, starting a blaze that will continue to burn for hours. Um, now, while this is happening, a separate vehicle, a bus full of Iranian civilians, arrived on the scene as well, which forced the Rangers and Delta Force to take the civilians captive. This is not an Iranian military force intercepting. These are just some locals just who are minding their own business, yeah. <laughs> uh, trying to smuggle fuel. Frankly, a very American enterprise. And uh, they, now they're being held captives by a bunch of Marines. Yeah. Sorry, Delta Force guys. <laughs> who, who gives a shit? The helicopters, they trickle in to Desert One. They're all there by one in the morning. And they start getting in. They're refueling. They're a little bit behind, but like, hey, we can still get this down. And we still got six helicopters. Everything is going to be fine. Now, when Bluebeard 2 is refueling, uh, its crew detects a hydraulic leak in the backup flight controls. They decide to ground the helicopter, um, bringing the total operation helicopters uh, down to five, which is not enough. And this pisses the hell off of Colonel Beckwith, who's in charge of this whole operation. And... Um, there's a squabble between some junior officers to him about whether or not the helicopter can continue the mission. This is going to be relayed uh, and squabbled out as Beckwith uh, contacts uh, headquarters uh, with the news. President Carter himself is contacted and he asks if the mission truly needs to be aboard if they can press him with five helicopters. Beckwith, having come to his senses, tells him that there's no way they can do this with five uh, helicopters. And Carter will relent. Uh, the helicopters continue to refuel, but now they're going straight back to them. So, so far, it's like 1.30, 2 o'clock, and we've taken a few hostages and broken enough helicopters that now we have to leave. But... This is where things are going to get a little more dramatic. As the helicopters begin to take off, the dust kicked up by their rotors obscures their vision and their ability to see the ground controllers. Bluebeard 3 pitches forward too aggressively and collides with one of the parked C-130 tankers, causing a massive explosion that results in the loss of both aircraft and eight lives, three aboard the helicopter and five aboard the C-130. This leads to complete mayhem in Desert One, as command and control collapses, the soldiers rush to board the remaining C-130s, and in the chaos, the decision is made to just abandon the remaining helicopters and return to Oman. Um, but the Delta Force personnel, tasked with removing constitutional documents and lay the charge to destroy the helicopters, they fail to do so. So the C-130s, they make it back to Oman, but they leave behind the wreckage of U.S. aircraft, uh, functional helicopters that can work, confidential documents, the bodies of eight servicemen, and let's not forget uh, several very annoyed and very harried Iranian <laughs> oil smugglers. Yeah, and, and just random people who happen to be on a bus. <laughs> 
So, Eagle Claw has failed everyone's radio and told, uh, you know, pack it up, boys, and, and go home. Uh, Gigi no re. Now, as we've seen, he, Operation Eagle Claw had to be aborted before the majority of the mission had even had the chance to take place. That being said, I think it's worth taking a step back to look at, on at least a more theoretical level, the flaws of the mission as a whole. Um, we've mentioned some of them, but just to, to really go into them again, uh, one of the big issues with this entire operation was the lack of proper command and control. Now, on the national level, command was unified and strong. There was no disagreement in the, in the White House over support for the operation. Partially because the people who did support the operation had been, like, completely cut out at that point. Yeah. <laughs> but on a tactical level, command was weak and disorganized. Now, here I'm quoting from Broken Stiletto, which is an excellent analysis of Operation Eagle Claw, written by Army Major William Flint. Um, a lot of the research from this episode comes from Broken Stiletto. And Flint says, The problem was not that the Joint Task Force did not have a commander. The Joint Task Force did have a commander, Major General Vaught. Unfortunately, he did not take charge and lead, but instead either abrogated or lost his authority in many ways. There was no shortage of leaders, either. Indeed, the true problem was that there were too many leaders. See, Vaught had overly delegated his authority to this fractured chain of command, with no single person directing the entire mission. Uh, command officers were instead given or assumed their duties on a sort of ad hoc basis, with little thought put into how they were going to execute them. Uh, for example, you've got Beckwith, he's in charge of the entire assault team, but uh, he would basically have no ability to monitor the situation at the foreign ministry as he's executing the assault on the embassy. And as a result of that, Beckwith had delegated command over the foreign ministry team to Marine Colonel Pittman, who is to take charge of a team of Army Special Forces he had essentially no experience working with. They put a Marine Colonel in charge of an Army Special Forces unit. Yep. Great idea. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have Air Force Colonel Kyle being given command over the Road Watch team at Desert One. Those guys did a great job, now didn't they? <laughs> and they did that terrible job because they had basically no experience and little knowledge of Delta and Ranger tactics. Yeah, as a whole, there was no single officer putting command of the entire Desert One for an operating base. Authority was split between Colonel Kyle and Colonel Beckwith. The resulting confusion led to actions taken without either of their knowledge, such as the shooting of the civilian oil truck. Now, on a personal level, some of the officers involved exhibited key flaws. General Vaught, as mentioned, delegated too much of his authority and was too easily swayed by subordinates. He initially wanted to travel to Desert One personally, which would have established a key command presence at the site, but he was told otherwise by Colonel Beckwith. Now, Beckwith was deeply familiar with his men. He's actually one of the founders of Delta Force, and he was used to leading them as an equal. Delta Force operated with loose regulations. They weren't even wearing proper uniforms at Desert One. They were literally wearing blue jeans. And 
they didn't really have much on them that would signify their rank. (laughs) (laughs) The result of this, however, is that the men of the other branches who were not familiar with Delta Force had trouble identifying who Beckwith was when they were trying to find him. Which is, of course, already going to be difficult at night in a sandstorm. Yep. Now, another key issue was the obsession with operational security. Now, this obsession with OPSEC would prevent many elements of of the mission from receiving key information. Real quick, what what is operational security? Operational security is basically just entails everything that involves keeping elements of a mission or a plan or anything secret. Um, you want the enemy to not have any idea of what's going on, and thus you want to keep things from being leaked. Now, the obsession with OPSEC stemmed from an incident the year prior when news of a buildup of naval strength in the Indian Ocean was leaked to the press as a result of a sailor talking to his wife back home about the upcoming deployment. This, you know, kind of spooked the, spooked the planners quite a bit. Um, if you've ever seen the old World War II poster of loose lips sink ships, that's sort of the mindset involved. They did take things too far, to the point where the various elements of Operational Eagle Claw were kept ignorant of the overall plan and had little ability to communicate with each other during the planning phase. For example, Air Force meteorologists studied and prepared reports for pilots on the dangers posed by sandstorms and how to mitigate them, but these reports never made it to the Marine helicopter pilots. That's like, honestly, the wildest part of this entire thing to me is the meteorology. Because I feel like if anyone in all familiar with the climate of Iran was like on the planning stage, would be able to point out of what haboobs <laughs> are and like when they occur, you know, seasonally yeah. and would warn about them. Uh, those sandstorms would get in the way of the radio communications, which are also being hindered by the operation of imposed radio silence. But making things even worse, um, some of the Air Force ground controllers in Desert One don't even have radios compatible with the Navy helicopters and are relying solely on hand gestures at night in a sandstorm. And to make things all the worse, um, as a result of all this ad hoc planning and obsession with OPSEC, no rehearsal involving every element of the operation took place prior to its execution. These officers and soldiers were expected to work with or take charge of men from other units or branches they had little to no experience working with. Um, And again, they didn't have any rehearsal. You know, normally this kind of thing, the military might set up like, I don't know, some, you know, mock up of this in, say, the Mojave Desert. And I mean, there's plenty of desert in America to rehearse this stateside and get everything uh, sort of the kinks ironed out. But they don't even do that. We got to go, 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 go. And... The desire on the part of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to have every branch represented, which we've mentioned before, complicated things even further in regards to training. Because when the Navy pilots pulled out of the mission, uh, Colonel Kyle from the Air Force wanted to replace them with Air Force pilots. Um, This did make sense. The Air Force had pilots who had direct experience working with Special Forces units 
and flying low-level insertion missions. The Pentagon, however, pushed for the Marines to be included, despite the fact that the Marines did not have any pilots with similar experience. The Marine Corps did operate earlier variants of the RH-53C Stallion, but they did not operate the D variant, the specific one that was selected by the Navy for Eagle Claw. The result of this is that the Marine helicopter pilots were sent on a mission they had no experience in, were not fully trained for, and were not properly briefed for. They had not received training or even verbal instructions on how to deal with the sandstorms. And just as an example of the issues that would result of this, the rotor warning light on Bluebeard 6 would have probably been ignored by Navy or Air Force pilots, who would have known that the D variants were rated as safe to fly even with the light on. The Marine pilots were not informed of this, however. You know, the Marine crews have often been accused after the fact of being overly cautious. Bluebeard 5's crew in particular were, are often blamed for just turning around and heading back to the Nimitz instead of, you know, sticking it through. But it's clear to me that they were operating to the best of their ability based on their training and what they had been briefed for. They just weren't trained and briefed for the, this. <laughs> the mission. They were... <laughs> yeah. So... You know, all in all, Operation Eagle Claw failed because it didn't have enough helicopters. But it failed because it was just an awful idea requiring execution of multiple operations simultaneously. Dozens of different elements with completing their missions with minimal or no delays, no complications. Everything had to roll perfectly little room for adaptation and improvisation and this sort of like you had to create this sort of perfect watch like all these beautiful gears have to be laid in place but said gears are being laid in place by this ad hoc team of thrown together chain of command with officers and men who had been trained properly for the mission who didn't work together who hadn't met each other and this all turned into basically a thing that should have been nixed from the get-go. Yeah, you know, given that this whole plan would have had to occur with this, all of these issues that we've gone through, um, it's really impossible to imagine Operational Eagle Claw having gone off without a hitch. And as it turns out, problems would develop right from the beginning. You know, in hindsight, it's kind of ironic that the helicopter issues and the caution exhibited by the Marine pilots probably saved Eagle Claw from becoming a total unmitigated disaster. While the loss of eight lives, uh, which occurred after the mission was called off, was undoubtedly tragic, had Eagle Claw progressed beyond Desert One and failed at a later point, it's quite possible that the entire assault team may have ended up being killed or taken hostage themselves. And that would have been an utter humiliation for the United States. But the American hostage crisis was a continued embarrassment for the Carter administration. The Iranian hostage crisis is generally, like, often blamed as the reason that Carter loses to Ronald Reagan in the 1980 presidential election. This has actually recently been kind of called into question by some more modern research um but it certainly did not help 
a uh, administration that was a series of uh, bungling failures. The military did actually plan another rescue tip named Operation Credible Sport, which is like, I feel like on the opposite <laughs> of the name spectrum from Eagle Claw, yeah. um, right after uh, the um, Eagle Claw would be nixed, but it gets canceled as uh, the Americans start um, angling towards a diplomatic solution. And just briefly, I do love Operation Incredible Sport just because of the idea of landing C-130s inside of a soccer stadium and taking off with a rocket assist. That is what the plan entailed. <laughs> now, I'm just a simple country YouTuber. But one... A soccer stadium does not sound like a large enough place for a C-130 to land. And two, if a helicopter blew up working with a C-130, I don't think a rocket would do much better. <laughs> yeah, they haven't really worked out the whole plan before, before it got canceled. But, unfortunately, we'd never get to see Credible Sport because the Americans would very boringly reach a diplomatic solution in the Algiers Accords. Uh, Iran would release the hostage in exchange for the U.S. unfreezing uh, Iranian assets. And uh, in a final act of humiliation, the hostages would not be released until Ronald Reagan took the presidency. Eagle Claw, of course, would be studied by the military for decades later and lead to several reforms and structural changes. Yeah, the most significant of these was the creation of the United States Special Operations Command, also known as SOCOM, which is a unified combatant command involving the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And this was created to facilitate a more cohesive cooperation between the branches for special force operations. The Army would put significant resources into developing tactics for low-level nighttime helicopter operations, and that would lead to the formation of the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. I've also heard that this is also where the idea for the need of a tilt-rotor aircraft started percolating in the yes, minds yeah. of the DoD and would lead directly to the V-22 Osprey, a delightful little piece of machinery. Yep. Now, while Eagle Claw would certainly not be the last tactical failure on the part of the United States military, one can argue that the subsequent joint operations have at least avoided the total lack of command authority and unity displayed in 1980. So congrats. I'm going to take over for now. Uh, Jay's going to come back and do the plugs. But the reason I'm fascinated by Eagle Claw is, one, it's it's a great story. I, I hope we've been entertaining, but I want to talk about, like, how we view the military and what the military can do. When I was growing up uh, as a middle schooler, one of some of the most important media I consumed were uh, Transformers movies. Those are really big when I was a kid, the Michael Bay shit. Uh, I was also a huge Call of Duty fan. I remember being 13 and me and my buddies staying up all night to play through the 
campaign of Call of Duty Black Ops and crying at Reznov and just having a good old time. And then later as a high schooler, I would get really into Tom Clancy novels. And if you watch a Call of Duty campaign segment or you read a Tom Clancy novel um, or you watch a big budget Hollywood uh, action movie with the military in it from the aughts, uh, you may notice that the military is portrayed as hyper-competent on the cutting edge of technology, self-sacrificing, and just near-miraculous in their ability to execute their operations. Constantly coming with new innovative ways to solve a problem with a small band of hyper-well-trained, dedicated special forces units using the newest technology available to them, and, like, that's just a lie. <laughs> like, Special Forces operations do work out. You know, we just did an episode on the hunt for Saab bin Laden. And Navy SEALs did go and kill him in a residential compound in the middle of a Pakistani suburb. Uh, that worked out, at least. But, I have to seriously think... That modern Americans, and obviously this is a problem outside of America too, but like our conception of what the military is capable of doing is not being mainly shaped by the military. It's being shaped by corporate mass consumer content. And a lot of, to be fair, a lot of that corporate mass consumer content, like, say, the Michael Bay Transformers movies or the Call of Duty series, is being made with the direct supervision, funding, and influence of the Department of Defense. Uh, that is how you, they want you to see them um, as incredibly self-sacrificing and brilliant. But it has a very tenuous relationship to reality or perhaps it only has a relationship to the most ideal outcomes in reality right and eagle claw is just like the perfect example of why it's only a tenuous relationship to reality because eagle claw like is a mission straight out of a call of duty campaign basically like it just is something that would happen yeah. in, say, Ghosts or Modern Warfare 2 or some shit. Yeah. And it basically failed before it even got off the fucking <laughs> ground. Yeah, this would totally be like an action movie where you had the heroes coming up against impossible odds and somehow pushing through each each challenge that yeah, they face. And, and there would be a... And there would be a disaster, but it would happen, like, once they had, like, gotten all the hostages out, like, we're heading to the soccer stadium, like, the Iran military would be on them, and there would be a big shootout, and, like, you know, there would be a heroic sacrifice or some shit. It would not be helicopters turning around in the desert because of a sandstorm. That they had not planned for and were not trained for and did not fully even understand the capabilities of the helicopters they were flying. Yeah. Some accuse me of making history boring. To which I will respond, history is very boring and it's very lame. And that's hilarious. This is why this is a comedy podcast. But 
no one is competent. No one could have pulled off this operation doing what uh, the Americans wanted to do in the way they wanted to do it. But I want to talk about, in the second epilogue here, because this, as this podcast is rapidly uh, falling apart <laughs> as I'm just riffing, I want to talk about a thing that actually did work, which is Argo. Um, Operation Argo, actually a lot of people know about it now because it was made into like a movie with uh, Ben Affleck in it. There is a much better book called Argo written by the actual guy, the CIA dude who who did the mission that you should read. It is an actual page burner. It's it's a good book, I, I promise. I haven't read it in eight years, but like when I was 16, I was like obsessed with it, okay? Um, Operation Argo was the CIA basically going into Tehran and um, extracting 12 americans who had been at the embassy but had left and escaped like the siege were basically hiding out in the basement of an allied safe house in tehran for like months and the iranian government didn't know about them so they were in tehran they weren't able to leave obviously like if the Iranians knew they were there they'd capture them but they weren't like under hostage and the CIA basically went in and with help from the Canadian government got them Canadian documents they spent uh, a few weeks or so basically briefing these Americans teaching them about their Canadian IDs sort of quizzing them and getting them ready to go past Iranian security and then they took these Americans into an Iranian airport, had them pretend to be Canadians, got past, uh, you know, international checking, and they got on a international civilian airplane, and they left. And it's worth noting that Argo was a success because it was a thing that had been done before. At this point, in 1980 the cia was masterful at forging documents and putting on disguises and training people to get through foreign airports the guy who did it had done it before this is the largest scale he'd done it before um it was just a single cia operation it was not very complicated hand people ids teach people what's on the ids and to get good with the story then go do on the thing and it required basically the people who were in the safe house and like two or three CIA agents who flew into the country with the documents. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. The movie tries to make it a lot more exciting than it was, but in many ways Argo is more brilliant because it was not super, super exciting. The simple plans are often the best. Yeah, it was a simple plan. It was executed very, very well, and it worked. And some things, when things work, they're not very dramatic. Um, but that's not what we like. Uh, we will tell stories that will intentionally obscure the way that our own military works to ourselves, and that will form the way we think about our military, and it will lead to more and more boondoggles because no one is competent. Jade... Tell the people our sources and, uh, and and plug us out. So for this episode, I mostly rely on a handful of sources. Now, these include uh, Operational Eagle Claw, Lessons Learned by 
uh, U.S. Air Force Major Richard A. Rodvalenu, and broken stiletto command and control of the Joint Task Force during Operation Eagle Claw by Army Major William C. Flint. Um, I also, Why do you call it broken stiletto? Where does that name come from? I think it just comes from the imagery of somebody walking and their stiletto breaking. Um, <laughs> I should probably look into that more. I I should say I've not actually read. It, it's from a larger work. I've not actually read the whole work, so I can say in particular I just read what was directly related to uh, this episode. And uh, I also relied on the Desert One debacle, which is an article uh, published by The Atlantic by uh, Mark Bowden. As usual, thank you for listening to No One Is Competent. You can follow us on Twitter at not underscore competent and listen to the podcast on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and several other platforms. As always, we encourage you to like, comment, rate, and, and subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy it. Um, if you'd like to reach out to us with questions or episode ideas, uh, you can send a message to our email address, which is noonescompetent at gmail.com. And our music is done by Sam Bryce. Thank you all for listening, and we uh, will see you in the next one, which we do not know what it will be that I assume me and uh, Jay will argue about that tomorrow. It is a mystery. Uh, but, yeah. Is, is, a, is mystery, is entertainment. Our incompetence has brought you more entertainment by making it into a mystery because we are brilliant geniuses and we are good at this job. Something like that. Y'all take care. <laughs>